Hey Cubs fans, welcome to the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs, an exclusive home of Cubs checking. I'm Andy Martinez, joined here by Tony Andraki, and we've got a special edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast. We're catching up with former Cubs alumni. We've caught up with a lot of them throughout throughout uh, Cubs convention. We, we've been airing them throughout here on the Cubs Weekly Podcast, but the latest one is Brian McRae. And with a lot of these guys, it's been fun to, to catch up with them, see what they're up to. But we wanted to reach out to them and talk to them at Cubs convention. So, Tony, I'm curious for you, what were you most looking forward to, to getting to know and talk about with, with Brian McRae? Yeah, I, he was a guy that I grew up watching a lot, you know, yeah. growing up in this area, growing up a Cubs fan. And, like, Brian McRae was, uh, it was, you know, 95, 96, like, right when I was starting to kind of understand a lot yeah. more and become a fan, he was the leadoff hitter for this team. And, like, I always I was always fascinated by, like, the one and two spots in the order. And that was, when I played, that was a little bit more of where my game was uh was best suited i was never a power guy i was always more on base and so like i always enjoyed watching those guys as a kid growing up and you know all the way through middle school high school and so on and so mccray was a guy that stands out to me even though he only had a few years here but stands out vividly in my memory just of like being a fan and so i thought that was a pretty cool aspect but i think it was like the leadoff mindset i I really wanted to talk to him about that and we know how important it was for dexter fowler in 2016 even that 15 team we know that there was that gap for a while after where ian happ and kyle schwarber and chris bryant and anthony rizzo and the cubs did everything they could to try to fill that that role even in 2023 it was like nico at first then talkman and you know there's maybe pca there's so many different question marks even moving forward in that position but i thought it was cool to like get that perspective from him then also just hear about like you know, Sammy Sosa, like he came over in 95 and Sammy just was starting to become Sammy Sosa. Like he was a good player, but then he was becoming the star level player. This was a few years before the home run chase in, in 98. So like to, to hear McRae's perspective of that too, but then also just to like hear how being back at Cubs convention, the interactions with fans, like what is it like to, to have the Cubs hold such a special place in your heart, even though he was only here for two and a half seasons. So I, I wanted to find out about all of that, and he was great with his time, yeah. With that, let's get to more from Brian McRae. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Cubs Weekly Podcast here. We have a special guest, former Cubs outfielder Brian McRae. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a, this is an honor for me, and uh, I'm glad to be back at uh, Cubs convention. So what has Cubs convention been like for you, or what is it like for you as a former player to come here and interact with the fans and stuff again? It's just good to see everybody that I haven't seen in a while. And with the COVID years that threw some things off, it's great to be able to catch up with fans, be able to see some former teammates. And for me, it's always great to get back to the city of Chicago. What has retirement been like for you? What have you been up to the last few years here? Well. I retired in 2000, and I worked for ESPN and Major League Baseball, did some broadcasting for a while, and then uh, I got into coaching uh, at the college level, and I went back and got my uh, my undergrad. Uh, so that's it, it's been keeping me busy, and uh, I got my undergrad in 2018. I coached at the college level for about 15 years and did about seven years of broadcasting, but um, it still doesn't fill that void of what happened what was going on when I was playing, and I and I missed that. So this kind of gets me uh, back into that where I feel like I did when I played, and uh, get to getting like I said, come back to Chicago and and seeing everybody is uh, is a good jolt to my system. So as a coach, or obviously as a former player, but as a coach, then is it difficult to be? 
just sitting there and you don't have actual control or direct control over what's going on? Is it? Do you find it tougher? Do you find it more anxiety-inducing or stressful? Like we were talking to Kerry Wood earlier in the, in the convention here, and he was talking about it, Coach Anutriri. He's like, it's a little bit more difficult, but in other ways it's kind of nice to just sit back, relax, and let the kids have their moment. Like how did you experience it as a former player? Well, first, when I first started doing it, I didn't know much because I hadn't co coached before, and I just tried to look back at the times where I was taking instruction from some of my coaches in the minor leagues and, and how to go about those things. And, and the first thing I remember is the game is hard. And at times we make it look easy because we play it at the, at the top level. But it's a hard game and you're not going to succeed a lot. You're going to have a lot of failure. So it took me a while to watching the game and not get upset when guys aren't doing the things that I think they should be doing and uh, and all that but over time practice is what was more stressful than the games I try to put more emphasis in everything was going on in practice and then once the games start I just let the games play themselves out and that's what I learned to calm me calm myself down is put a lot of time and effort and energy into practice and then once the game starts just sit back and relax and watch it we were talking a little bit before the podcast here just about how much you keep up with the Cubs, and you were saying you have season tickets. Can you just share a little bit with the fans about how much the Cubs are still a part of your life, even here in retirement? I played in three places for the majority of my career. Kansas City, where I grew up, here and with the Mets in New York. But I feel more connected to the city of Chicago and, and, and the Cubs because of the way the fans have treated me and the city and I come back quite a bit, and it's easy to get back here from, uh, from Kansas City. And I think with being on WGN, playing day games, having people see you play all the time, even though I was only here for three years, it just, I feel like I'm more of a Cub than a Royal, and I spent 10 years in that organization. That's pretty crazy to think about it. And like, I was, so my next question was gonna be, what do you think, you seem to have your best years here in Chicago. What do you think it was about the Cubs that brought it out of you? But maybe you alluded to that a little bit, is that the fans and the way that they treated you here, right? Well, I think it's twofold. My last two years in Kansas City, I was finally coming into my own as a major league player, getting established, got traded here, and the National League fit better for me. I, I enjoyed playing in the National League. I think that style of ball was, was better for the type of player that I was. And I like day games where a lot of guys complain about getting up and don't like. I am a morning person. Spring training, you get up and you play day games. So it fit into what my schedule was, and I think that it was just a good combination of a lot of things. I was better at 27 than I was at 22. I understood what I could and couldn't do more. I was comfortable with being in the major leagues, and I liked the schedule and the routine. Of I felt like a 9-to-5 guy here. And I, and I like that. Get up in the morning, go to the ballpark, you play, you go out and eat, hang out for a little bit, and you're, you're home by 10 o'clock, 10, 10, 10, 30, and you do it all over again. I like that schedule. I like that routine. And I think that's why I had success here in uh, Chicago. Was there a moment with the fans, too, that you felt like you were a Cub, that you felt like you were really accepted, or, or even that you were like, wow, this place is special, and it's a different place to play than anywhere else in baseball? Well, I knew it was special because when I played for the Royals, we had a day off. And a bunch of us came over to Wrigley and watched, watched the game. And I'd never been in Wrigley before. Were you guys in town playing the White we're, Sox? We, okay. We're in town playing the White Sox. And we're like, hey, it's like we got a day off. Let's go over to Wrigley 
a lot of us had never been there because there wasn't any interleague play yet. So this was probably 93, uh, 94, and we came over and hanging out in the neighborhood, seeing the whole scene and the vibe. It's just different from any other place. And you could tell it's a special bond between the players and the fans, the neighborhood, the city. It was something that you really don't feel. You know, New York is huge, and the fan base there is is pretty. They're pretty legit, but it's still nothing. I don't think anything really hits you like it does here in Chicago playing for the Cubs. What was it like when you were here playing with guys like Cubs legends like Mark Grace and Ryan Sandberg and Sean Dunstan, guys who are in the Cubs Hall of Fame here now? Like, what was it like playing with guys like that? I've known Sammy since he was with the Rangers in the minor leagues. So I've known him since we were like 18 years old. So it, it was cool to watch the progression there, uh, watching Dunstan, Grace, Sandberg on TV. Yeah. You know, I watched them when I was in the minor leagues and, and watching them on, on TV and having Harry Carey butcher my name a couple times. And, <laughs> it, it, but it was, it How was did just, he butcher it? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember exactly. But okay, yeah. Even though I think it's easy to pronounce, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was just playing with those guys that I watched because growing up, you only watched the Braves or the Cubs. You had TBS and WGN, so you knew almost all the players on the Braves, whether you wanted to or not, and you knew all the players on, on the Cubs because th those games were on almost every day. And to be able to be here and do that, and then you have your friends and family can watch everything you do. You know, that's something that at the time in the mid-90s, every game wasn't on TV. So it was special to have that experience where no matter what was going on, my friends and family can watch me play. They don't have to get a special package. They don't have to do They just turn on WGN and get to watch me play. And, and that was cool because that was something that I'd, I would rush home from school to watch a Cub game. And now my friends and family get to do that. You mentioned Sammy, too. So what was it like, you know, 95 being here where he kind of ascended into Sammy that we know? That was his first all-star year. But what was it like, you know, knowing him from 18, then seeing him develop into this guy? And obviously the home run chase was a couple years later. But, like, 95 was, was in large part his breakout year. What right. was it like witnessing that firsthand even? It was, it was special. You could tell that something good was coming because he started improving and he got better and better each year. And being able to, you know, I hit in the same batting practice group that he hit in. And Billy Williams would take us to the cage at the same time. So I got to watch a lot of the behind-the-scenes things that he was doing and the, and the work that he put in, the hours that he, that he put in. You know, people don't realize, you know, he was one of the first guys to the ballpark. He was one of the last guys out of the cage. He was always hitting extra. He was doing a lot of things to make himself better. And it took a number of years but once it clicked, you know, he went from being a really good major league player to one of the best for a five or six year period. When you were here, you spent almost every start in the leadoff spot. What was your mindset as a leadoff hitter? And how have you seen the game change just in terms of what is expected of big league, lead, big league leadoff hitters or just the guys that are put in that role that are maybe different than the mid 90s when you were here? I don't consider myself as a leadoff hitter. I did it because that's what the teams needed me to do. Um, but I think the role of on-base percentage 
and walks and things like that is more emphasized now than it was in my era. I tried to hit to get on base, and you know I, I was I swung the bat. I like to, you know I didn't I didn't walk a lot until later later in my career, but I thought that you know my job was try to get on base, and I like to swing the bat and then make things happen when I got on base. Try to steal bases and and set up things for the for the guys uh, hitting behind me. And I think the game now has changed where some of the rule changes have made it to the stolen base isn't as prevalent as it was before. You see home run strikeouts and walks. There are a lot of hitters that they don't care about if they strike out. It was a big deal to, to not strike out 100 times. Now a lot of guys do that. So I think the, the offensively the game has changed but I think it's going to evolve back to where small ball, guys like me being able to be successful doing things without hitting a home run, you know, sacrifice bunt, bunt for a base hit, things like that. I, Use I think, the opposite field. A bit, yeah, yeah, I think those things are going to come back into play. And if you watch the postseason, the home runs didn't win all the postseason games. There was a lot of things, the little things that, that got it done. And uh, I think we went to a, through a period of 10 to 15 years where – you're seeing high strikeout totals, high home run totals, low batting averages, but I think we're going to swing back around to where doing some little things is going to help teams win ball games and win championships. So our stellar research department, shout out to Kyle for this, found out that you and your dad are a pair, there are seven pairs of fathers and sons who were both struck out by Nolan Ryan throughout their career. Did you know that about yourself, and I guess what is that like to to face the same guy that your dad did, a Hall of Famer, a legend like that, and I guess have the same result. They well, I think a that lot of guys. a stat that they should put out is me and my dad were a pair of seven father-sons that got hits off Nolan Ryan. Okay. Not, not only struck out, but... Um, so you did get a hit off Nolan yeah, Ryan? Yeah, I got a couple hits. Sure. Okay, I think yeah. I got a couple hits off Nolan Ryan, and I'm sure my, my dad probably did. Uh, yeah. But it, it was... I grew up around the ballpark. I was a bat boy. I was a ball boy. Spring training spring break that was my time to be with my father and I hung out at the ballpark so that's all I knew and being able to to play and get to the big leagues and then have my dad manage me for three years in Kansas City you know that was something that that's special a lot of kids try to follow in their dad's footsteps and I was able to do that at the, at the major league level and then I think we also we were the first father-son pair that played in a game together. The Griffies did it in, in a regular season game, I think in 89. But in the spring training of 86, me and my father were in the same line. I didn't know that. After yeah. I got drafted by the Royals in, in 85. So that was, that was just cool to be able, you know, he had to have a long career, and I had to uh, be able to get called up pretty quick or, or get invited to spring training for that to happen. And uh, so that's something that no matter whatever happens in life, you can say that, you know, you did some things that only a handful of people that have ever played this game are able to say they did. What was that like playing with your dad in a spring training game, but also, like you mentioned, playing for your dad when he's a manager? Like, that's such a unique position that 99.999% of big leaguers have never experienced. Yeah, playing in the game in spring training was surreal. The Royals had just won the 85 World Series. I go to camp with them in 86. And I get in a in a game with him, and I'm actually hitting. I think I was hitting second, and he was hitting like fourth or fifth. So I got to hit in front of my dad, and I got on base, 
I think I was on second base early in the ball game, and he's hitting, trying to like drive me in. So that was all surreal and, and, a, and a cool moment. Did he end up driving you in? That I don't moment? think so. Okay, all right. but uh, but that was just cool to be able to. I had played in the game with my father, and then a few years later, when he's managing, the first couple years, it was kind of tough because I wasn't used to. I was still a young player. I was still trying to get my footing as a big league player. So I think I put more pressure on myself and I struggled because I wanted to do well for my father. I didn't want him to get fired because I wasn't playing well. And I think I took all of that a little bit too hard when things weren't going well. And I didn't adjust to that as good as I probably should have. My third and fourth year in Kansas City with him managing, I got more comfortable with it. I didn't feel like the other players were treating me different because my, my dad was the manager. He was treating me like another ball player. So I think in the end it worked out worked out well and we had a great a great time. The family was all together. Um, 93 and 94 were years that propelled me to do good things once I got here to, to Chicago. But uh, it uh, th- those first few years were, were tough because it was just the unknown of am I here because I'm a good player. Did my dad keep putting me in the lineup because I'm, a, you know, all all those things that you, the outside things that you worry about, and it took me a couple years to say I'm I'm here because of what I can do. My dad's a manager, but it's not as complicated as we're going to try to make it, and just go out and play. Growing up, the son of a big leaguer, then like you said, spring break was spent in spring training. You were obviously around big league clubhouses. Was there ever a path beyond? Base, pro baseball player, or was it always, I'm going to be a pro baseball player? I want player? to be a broadcaster. So that's what I studied. That's what I, I – I was striving to be a broadcaster. I didn't know if I'd play, if I was good enough to play at the major league level. But I knew that – I know the game, and I talk about the game all the time. So why not try to parlay that into a broadcasting career? So that's what I was working towards is just try to be a broadcaster, try to be a coach, uh, bring my knowledge of the game to other people. And you know, I, I knew I wanted to be surrounded by baseball at, at, at some point, whether it's playing, coaching, in the booth. So I, I just wanted to be – I wanted to do something baseball-related. So – when you were here with the Cubs, did you have a favorite moment? Is there a moment or a game or anything that sticks out to you that is like, I'm so glad I got to experience that memory, either in front of the Wrigley crowd or just in a Cubs uniform? Probably the first series that we played against the White Sox in 97 when the um, interleague play came into existence. Just feeling that we played them in a couple of exhibition games, but it just didn't feel right. But the energy level playing, and we played them – over there on the, on the south side but just you feel we, we were we wore throwback uniforms of one of the early 1900 cubs cubs teams it, it was just a, a cool moment we won the series um you know just being able to wear that cubs uniform and think of all the history and then the history between the two teams because it's it's two of the oldest teams in, in Major League Baseball. And, uh, you know, that, that to me was, it was a, a good moment. Just I understood the passion that the city has for baseball and, and saw it. And, and then we beat up on the Sox, too. <laughs> That's always good. 
when you were playing here, were you aware of the Cubs' long championship drought? Was that something that you were conscious of or even you and your teammates kind of discussed? At that point, it was in the 80s, you know, 80-something years that it had been since the World Series. But, like, was that something that you guys had discussed much? Not discussed, but it was – it wasn't internal, but external you heard about, you know, the lovable losers – you know, we had a good year in 95. We almost made the playoffs. But everybody was thinking, like, when is this team going to falter? Like, they're playing well, but it always happens. June swoon, you know, you hear, hear all those things. So it was a lot of negative things from the outside that were put on being a, being a Cubs player. And that was frustrating. But to see what they were able to do, and then I was here for the World Series. Okay. Uh, I got to come to a couple games and, and all that. And, you know, we joked around with guys like, if the Cubs ever get to the World Series, I'm going to make sure I'm in Chicago. You know, I may not be in the stadium, but we're going to make sure get some guys together because we want to we see this. Because we're, we're a small part of that. We weren't on championship teams, but we're still a, a part of that. And, uh, you know, the, the history of the Cubs changed in 2016 you know they're not called you don't hear the lovable losers as much anymore you hear things talked about in championship terms now instead of are we just going to be 500 are we going to just be okay what are games going to matter late in the season the expectations are not just are what what's going to happen no expectations or what are we going to do late in the season are we going to make a trade are we going to have a long playoff push? So, you know, that's good to see that the narrative has changed, that it's not a loser mentality anymore. And that's what's exciting for me to, to come to games and to experience it now is because people are expecting the team to win. They're expecting the team to push for a division title, to get play games deep into October. And that was something that, 30 years ago, you didn't think about it in those terms. Did any of your other teammates come and join you in 2016 for the World Series here? Like, Yeah, uh, Todd Haney okay. uh, was here, uh, Roosevelt Brown. Nice. We all we all got together, uh, got together here, and and we hung out at Murphy's and Sluggers and all the places around around Wrigleyville. And, uh, you know, there's about 20 of us that are on group text, so we're always – talking about the games and try, trying to get together. So it was, and you guys were all rooting like fans, I imagine, right? we were right? rooting yeah. like fans to, you know, we want to see the Cubs do well. You know, even though I grew up in the Royals organization, as I said before, I feel a strong connection to, to Chicago and, the, and I, I want to see the Cubs. I check the box scores every day. I pay attention to what the, what the, what the Cubs do, and I want, them, I want them to do well. You know, it's good for baseball when the Cubs play well. It's good for the city of Chicago when the Cubs do well. And, you know, I enjoy following that. Yeah, I know you were in Chicago for the games that were here, but for game seven, do you remember where you were, where you watched it, and then what emotions did you feel? I was coaching. The I was at the University of Missouri. I was finishing up my undergrad, and I was, I was coaching, coaching there. And I know that uh, a bunch of guys got together in the baseball facility there at Mizzou, and we, and we watched the game. And it, it was – it was a cool moment because I never thought that I would see that in my lifetime. You know, I didn't think I'd see Red Sox win a World Series, White Sox win a World Series, or the Cubs win a World Series in my lifetime because it had been, been so long. And that finally happened, 
and I went outside and just kind of like it, it pinched myself. Like it, it really did. This just did it just happen? And the way it happened with the rain delay and the dramatics in late innings and all and all that, you never thought that it was. I thought the one curse was going to be broken, and I thought the Indians were going to break their curse because of the way the way things were were playing out. But uh, you know, those guys on that team were able to do something that generations and generations and generations of Cub fans are going to continue to talk about. And that, you know, you don't want stats and all these things. You want your legacy to be what you were able to do and what your team was able to do collectively. And that's the cool thing about that group is they were able to do something that all these teams with all these stars, Hall of Famers, All-Stars in Cubs history, they weren't able to do. That group was able to do it. What was that group text like during Game 7, particularly in oh, those Oh, phones were just blow, blowing up. And, yeah. and, and guys were like, I can't watch or I'm going to watch. I'll turn it away from the TV. I can't. Like, is it going to really happen? And now the rain delay, oh, God, you know, all those things. that uh, you know, guys were just freaking out. And out of all the alumni groups that I'm in with the Cubs, Royals, and, and the Mets, this one is one that sticks together and does, does things, play golf tournaments, do charity events. The guys that I played with, I think we do more than any of the other groups that, that I'm involved with. Well, Brian, thank you so much for stopping by the Cubs Weekly Podcast here. We really just appreciate all the insight and, and all the stories that you've told us here. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's a good time being here. And this passion of Cub fan, Cub baseball is something that's probably unmatched in Major League, Major League Baseball. All right. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Get your Wintrust exclusive debit card. Get your Cubs card. Ooh, I'll take one. How much? Actually, they pay you $300. You heard right. Get a $300 bonus when you open a Cubs checking account with Wintrust. Enjoy all perks and purchase with pride every time with your Wintrust Cubs debit card. $300? Wait, what? I'll take $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $300. $
people, everyone besides the players doesn't ride that that emotion. I remember someone from the Cubs front office telling me when the Cubs in 2023 had that that's that big series win against Cincinnati, kind of right around the beginning of September, how excited they were and like how like pumped they they were, like they knew that was their moment, uh, or it felt like their moment. So yeah, don't ever believe the the whole you don't ride the emotion when you're done playing. Like Brian McRae. Any former player, any front office member, they're especially in a game like Game Seven, they're going to be riding it. So it's it's always fun to to hear those kind of stories from people who were there in the field and actually playing and, and have that firsthand experience. So really, really cool to to hear that. So thanks for tuning in for Tony and Drackey. I'm Andy Martinez. That'll do it for this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast.